Thank you for your patience. Alrighty, welcome everybody to Perfect the Pause. I'm so glad you're here with us today. We are going to talk about how to handle disagreement and conflict with ease. Have you ever lost your temper? The slides are not advancing, but we will get there. There we go. Have you ever lost your temper in an instant? Someone like me with technology these days? It's not a lot of fun. It just one moment you're totally fine and the next moment you are redlining. Think about a situation where you lost your temper, got irritated, frustrated, reacted more emotionally than you would normally. Did it impact how you felt about yourself or about the other person? I remember when I was young, my mother used to call me a hothead. And, you know, in a lot of cultures, we talk about them being more emotional, short fuse, all of those kinds of things. You know, we used to acknowledge that some people just were quicker to anger than others. Now we refer to quick to anger as something to be avoided. We call it emotional dysregulation, not quite as nice of a term. But, you know, on the positive, in elementary schools, we are starting to teach kids a little more about how to handle their emotional regulation. And quite frankly, that's something that we as adults learn a little bit about, but we aren't necessarily very good at it. And that translates into our personal lives and our work lives as well. So my memory of my having a short fuse is my mom yelling at me to calm down because we know that when you're feeling that short temperedness, that someone yelling at you, you know, is very helpful. Maybe not so much. It pretty much escalates the situation. Then you're both yelling. And sometimes you get into a yelling match and you forgot why you were angry in the first place, but you're just at this point really angry and dredging up everything that's made you mad in like the last 20 years with that person. We can take offense, you know, sometimes somebody will say something to me and I'll take offense and they'll say, why are you getting so upset? I meant that as a joke, I didn't you know, mean it that way at all. So I'm interpreting what they're saying and having a reaction to it, but it wasn't necessarily even what was intended. So when we hear someone else's words, or read their email or, and text messages. We do more than just register the words themselves. We take in all sorts of internal and external information when we're talking with people. And we, you know, often will say, we're filtering that message through our own lens on life, which basically means our past experiences, good, bad, and ugly. That impacts subconsciously how you interact and see the world. So email is another example of a way of communicating that we know can lead to misinterpretation. The tone in your head when you crafted that message might be lighthearted, maybe a little tongue in cheek, maybe even a little sarcastic, but it's not necessarily the tone in which the person reading the message is interpreting it they might be looking at it and going, wow, she was really short. Like that was curt, 
you know, this reality is one of the biggest contributors to our relationship and interpersonal stress. By the time we're in the workforce, we've hopefully built some skills to help us so that we don't overreact all the time. You know, we've been trained to try and create harmony, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But what it does do as well is it can create a sense of false harmony where we're being so polite that we're not really getting to the bottom of any disagreements. We're just taking our misunderstandings and carrying them along with us, sort of, excuse me, sort of like um, creating a brick. And if you have lots of little bricks, it's going to create a wall. So the first step in being able to pause long enough to manage your emotional stress is really to learn how to respond instead of react. So no matter how difficult the situation feels, you want to have that ability to not get triggered emotionally so that you can kind of come back and really um, be your best self as you respond. So one of the things that we've noticed is it's usually the people closest to us that have the power to really set us off. And so Dr. William Glasser um, has developed a theory called choice theory. And, um, and it allows us to really understand more about what is triggering us and really what we can do about it. So choice theory states that all we do is behave and that almost all behavior is chosen and that we are driven by our genes to satisfy five basic needs, love and belonging, power, fun, survival, and freedom. Now for anybody that is familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, these needs look really similar to what we know from Maslow's hierarchy. The difference with choice theory is that these needs are not hierarchical. Glasser really says that we need all of these things, the degree to which each of us prioritizes those needs in our own um, quality world or our perfect world of you know, how we show up and what our, our personality or psychology is, um, that will differ from person to person. And it's really the fact that we're different and we each have our own kind of ranking on these five things, but mine is not the same as yours and yours is not the same as your child's. So it's those differences that cause disagreement and conflict because we have in our minds a vision of what our perfect world, our quality world contains, but it might not be the same as what somebody else's quality world contains. And so when we are immediately filtering what we hear from someone else, we're matching it up and saying, oh my gosh, that's, you know, that is not lining up with what I need to have my quality world. And hence then, you know, I might be triggered to respond back. And depending on the need and the degree to which that need is important to me, 
it could trigger a very strong reaction. So let's talk a little bit about this quality world because understanding our quality world and how we um, feel when, when we're feeling that quality world is threatened is actually a big, big piece of why we react the way we do and with the intensity that we do. So notice that you don't necessarily respond with the same intensity to a stranger that you do to the people close to you, like your family or your coworkers, um, you know, especially people you've worked with for a long time. You lose that veneer of politeness because when you have that closeness and proximity to somebody, the importance to you of having your quality world and their quality world lined up so you're seeing things the same way, it's really important to you. And so when you have those moments where things aren't lining up, your emotional response to that is going to be a lot stronger. So um, each of these things, so let's talk a little bit about what it means and how it shows up. And I'll use myself as an example. Um, power, for example, power is, power for the sake of power is something that's unique to us as humans. So um, stories of powerful men and all the stuff that goes on in the pursuit of power and how power, um, what is it, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, certainly power is one of these intense, strong ones. And it really, you know, lines up with that sense of kind of survival and belonging and all of those things. So power is something super strong um, for many people. And we see it in the work world where um, we value people who have a high need for power. They tend to be charismatic. They tend to um, be really good at getting people to do things the way they want them to do. They're considered doers, drivers, um, many people who pursue or have a strong need for power move into powerful positions. Makes a lot of sense. However, in the pursuit of power, the downside is that people have no qualms about doing whatever they need to get it, even if it, even if it means sacrificing some of these other basic needs. And that means that they're willing to sacrifice other aspects of their quality world, like marriage, relationship with their children, family, and so on. I um, also think, you know, that that kind of desire, high need for power, um, you know, can really have people focus on kind of extrinsic motivation um, and extrinsic rewards for that power. Whereas some of the others, um, if you're high on those lists, the rewards that you see might be more personal or internalized. Freedom, for example, is power over others. 
sorry, power is power over others. Freedom is the power to make our own choices. So if power is the power over others, freedom is our power over ourselves and really shows up in that sense of, you know, we say someone's a free spirit. They want to pursue their path. They, you know, even if it's out of, you know, the commonly held kind of social structures, it's that need to get up and go. It's what drives us to travel, to um, interact with, you know, people from other cultures, to quit jobs and pursue other interests. It really becomes that kind of sense of autonomy. And so um, survival, of course, is our basic need. And I think about that sometimes, uh, you know, in choice theory, we, we say, if you wake up with the flu, pain, you're experiencing some pain. And pain tells you that your need to survive is currently being threatened by an infection. So your survival need to fight that infection will be, you know, will be triggered. So, you know, the other aspect of survival, when we see it, you know, some people's um, definition of survival is very different than others. Some people could be very comfortable living in a trailer and having lots of time and energy for fun. So they might have a low need for survival and a high need for fun. Um, when I think about survival, it also makes me think of Squid Games, for example. Uh, Squid Games, very popular on Netflix, is absolutely, uh, you know, it is about instinctual survival. Um, there is no, you know, the games are set up so that no one has an, a, an edge over anyone else. Everyone is competing for survival. And, uh, and that is, you know, that is at its very core, like that is life and death survival. Most of us, thankfully, don't have to deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis. Our survival needs come back to kind of that core sense of food, uh, basic, you know, protection of life and limb, and, um, you know, just our, our core ability to live, eat, etc. cetera. Uh, fun. So for fun, think of an, you know, the purest sense of fun would be an infant that uh, when you play peekaboo peek with them, they are experiencing this for the first time. And you, you can just see their excitement and the pure joy as they start to recognize that, you know, you are you and they are themselves. It's the first time they really perceive themselves and recognize that there's a difference between you and them and that they are um, an individual. So that experience of just sheer joy and fun is really precious. Um, many of us, though, you know, will have a lower need for fun. And we talk about that, you know, you talk about the um, you know, mar the marshmallow game, right? If you give a kid uh, one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later, will they be able to delay their gratification to go for the two marshmallows? Uh, 
if you have a high need for fun, you might not wait. You might say, nope, I want that marshmallow and I want it right now. There's no point in waiting. I'm going to enjoy it. So again, we each have different needs. And love and belonging is another really interesting one. I mean, we, you know, we all to different degrees have needs to be loved and also to belong. So if you're someone that has lots and lots of friends, um, but you're not super close with any of them, you might have a high need for belonging and a lower need for love. Vice versa, if you're someone that has a few friends, but you're super, super close with those friends, you might have a high need for love and a lower need for belonging. This is a really interesting one when you think about people who are, for example, on the autism spectrum. Clearly, they live in a world where they have a much lower need for love and belonging. They're not drawn to those emotional connections in the same way. And that's just part of how they're hardwired. So the degree to which, you know, where you are on the scale, where your needs are higher and lower, there's no good or bad about it. It's just about knowing yourself. And then when you know yourself, then it's also really interesting to realize when you are interacting with someone else and these gray dots represent that other person, um, I may not know where they are on their quality world where each of these things rank. But what I can tell you for sure is, you know, if I'm having conflict and disagreement, if I know where I'm at and what's being triggered in me, it makes it a lot easier for me to go, okay, my need for power is being triggered right now. I am feeling unsafe. This person, you know, blindsided me with information that, you know, is hurtful and I feel a lack of trust now. Um, that can really come because my, where in my quality world, where I am, I'm a perfectionist, I have a higher need for power, I like to be in a leadership role. If, you know, if somebody doesn't give me information or blindsides me with something very disruptive, that's going to trigger me pretty severely because my need is high. But for example, um, my need for fun is lower. If somebody says to me, Barry, you were supposed to go skiing today, um, but I need you to not go skiing because we have, you know, a crisis we need to deal with. I might be upset, but I'm not going to lose my temper completely over it. So just a couple of examples of how we all create our own vision for our quality world. And we carry that vision with us. And a lot of our disagreement and conflict stems from the fact that others are making choices that seem to um, impact our ability to achieve that quality world. So what happens when our basic needs feel threatened, right? So this is truly that sense of, okay, this has happened. Why do I respond? the way that I'm responding, or why do I react the way that I'm reacting? 
And again, the higher your need is, the more that you're going to feel threatened, your survival will feel threatened, your, you know, your quality world, your vision of what a great life or great day or great situation needs to be feels threatened. And that can trigger in us some thoughts. Now, in our, um, you know, deeply held beliefs and thoughts, uh, our brains are hardwired to react without thinking. Because that's, you know, in the old days, back in our, you know, original days of the dinosaur, when our primitive brain was really all we had, we had that need to survive. And you didn't have a lot of time to think, you had to just act. And so our thoughts and beliefs became ingrained into us. So according to Alexandra Reichenbach from University College in London, our brains have separate hardwired systems that visually track our own bodies, even when we're not paying attention. So we're going about our day, doing our thing, and uh, somebody says or does something that kind of, you know, impacts one of my basic needs from my, um, from my quality world. And this network triggers reactions before the conscious brain even has time to, to process them. So what typically happens in those situations? You react, you lose your temper, you explode, you might say something that you regret. You might feel a flush coming up your body as your you know, adrenaline kicks in. We talk about the different areas of our brain and the amygdala uh, being our primitive brain that really kicks into action. That's that fight, flight, uh, fight, flight, freeze. And, uh, you know, that's really kicking in. And when that primitive brain kicks in, what do you know? You can't think about anything else. You're, the rest of your brain shuts down. So, you know, that's really the core of the reaction that we have that leads us into these conflicts and disagreements that feel so intense. And I think we each, you know, we know in our, in our own selves, is it, you know, what is your typical go-to? Is it fight? You know, my, my mom um, love her dearly. When she gets triggered, you know, the best defense is a good offense. She goes into fight mode. I go into freeze mode and I shut down. As a child, I would lose the power to speak when I got really emotional. Um, others want to avoid the situation and just get out of it as fast as possible. So, you know, think about what your go-to is because it's important to recognize that and then give yourself that space. So, you know, in a business world, what is the result when you have people who are interacting, who work closely, who are really working to build trust, collaboration, all of the good qualities in a relationship 
they're bringing their quality worlds together. But it also means that when those worlds collide, it's really painful. And so you can see that, you know, what might seem innocuous to somebody else can be a big conflict between two people on a team when that happens, even if they're pretending and being polite on the outside, what they've internalized now is to, you know, kind of back away, productivity goes down, creativity goes down, trust goes down, you know, and it will bleed in to your personal life because when you're carrying that amount of, um, of you know, emotion, um, negative emotion, now you're, you know, stressed, you're having this relationship stress at work, you're going to bring it home because you're going to be now more tightly wound up. And vice versa, if you're having relationship stress at home, it's very hard to just come to work and leave that all behind and be super calm and neutral because, again, your body is instinctually in that, um, in that lizard brain mode, in your survival mode. So there is a better way. We are not doomed to just be, you know, controlled by our amygdala or primitive brain. We have the ability to pause and give ourselves a little bit of space in order to kind of shut the amygdala down and turn on our executive functioning, our thinking brain again, and give our conscious brain a chance to jump into action. But it takes some practice to get there. It's not something that you know we typically are born really good at. Um, so in the article, Responding Versus Reacting, uh, Jay Lex writes, the art of responding requires one to look at the circumstance, identifying the problem or situation, hear what is happening and reflect. That reflection can be for a moment, five seconds, an hour, two days, or longer. The time frame doesn't matter. What matters is that you stopped and put an effort to think and suspend judgment. It's a conscious act and shows that you are willing to listen or observe. This gap between the circumstance and your behavior is what contributes to gaining a sense of control in your life. Once a person can identify that in responding, they actually have a choice in the matter, he or she will start to realize that they're able to make better decisions. The key is that pause. If the situation requires an immediate action, then just take a deep breath first. This alone can help one gain a semblance of control and make one choose an alternative statement or action that can make a big difference in the outcome of the situation. So today I wanna to talk a little bit about how to create that pause and some specific tips on how you can do it and we'll practice it a little bit because the goal here is that you will leave our webinar today and be able to recognize when those situations are happening before you are so caught up in it. 
um, that you just react. It's really how do you insert that pause so that you can change from reacting to responding. So how do we do that? How do we change our thoughts when those thoughts are literally hardwired into us? The first thing we need to do is, you know, and this is really helpful, this model that we're looking at right now is called the CTFAR model. Uh, and it is, it's a really, really helpful model. It is used for people um, to help them kind of go through and you can use this to coach yourself. Uh, but today we're going to use it just to kind of give a sense of how this all works. Because when something happens, the circumstance itself is actually quite neutral. So in the case of my colleague and I, who uh, had a disagreement when she, you know, threatened what I realize now is my need for power, uh, being a perfectionist, that's a pretty high need for me. So we, you know, the circumstance is we had a conversation. It triggered a thought in me. Uh, that thought in my, you know, in my survival brain is, you know, she, I am threatened. This isn't going the way I need it to be going. And that produced a feeling of stress and anxiety, which my action was to lash out and, uh, you know, reaffirm my power. And the results were we ended up in an argument. But let's just think about this. You know, if I, if that circumstance happened and instead of me feeling threatened and triggered, I was able to say, hmm, let me, you know, stop for a second. I'm feeling uh, this is this is definitely bothering me, our conversation. So what is it about our conversation that's bothering me? It might give me the opportunity to think about it differently. And I might instead say, you know, we're both under a lot of stress. I'm going to assume positive intent here, not get upset, but ask her a question to say, Hmm, help me understand what you mean when you say that. So you can see by inserting a pause um, to try and create a little wedge there gives you the space to, even if you think that first thought, not to immediately jump to the feelings and the actions, but instead to insert a pause, it gives you the chance to insert a different thought. If you get really good at this model, you might actually get to the place where you no longer go right into your, you know, the circumstance triggering uh, deep rooted, you know, emotional reaction. You might be able to, to go directly to healthier, um, you know, more conscious, intentional thoughts. So three good ways to do that is uh, tapping, we'll go a little bit, tapping on the uh, heel of your hand, the side of your hand. A couple of techniques for how to use your breath to do this. 
um, and really how to remind yourself to assume positive intent. And that's a, that's a really hard one, but a really, really valuable one. So we'll talk about each one of these and, uh, and go into it a little bit. And the key here is, you know, none of these things are shocking. Um, they're probably things that you may already have been aware of. The key is really learning how to put it into action because actually like training yourself to, to do this automatically when something happens will give you that ability to pause. But it really means kind of finding your, your kind of go-to pause method and making it a habit that you use all the time. So the, you know, the first way is uh, to tap. And this comes from uh, EFT tapping, which is a known way to kind of release um, stress and energy by tapping on uh, acupressure points. So the heel of your hand when you're tapping on it uh, is releasing some of your stress energy. And so I do this a lot when I'm on um, Zoom meetings and, and lots and lots of conference calls and people are saying things and I find myself starting to react emotionally to what I'm hearing or I feel myself you know, starting to boil. I automatically just start tapping on the side of my hand that almost is like a cue or a wake-up call for me to realize my body is responding to what is going on. Take a breath and think about this and go and step back before you speak. So that physical action of tapping on the side of your hand is a cue to wake you up out of that instinctual reaction so that you can pause and now start to consider what other thoughts are available to you. Uh, the other great option is to use a breath technique. So uh, this first one, relax your jaw. Take a moment and, and just think about your jaw right now. When you're stressed, you tend, we all do, we tend to just clench our jaws. Now take your tongue and bring it up to the roof of your mouth. And as you do, drop your jaw down. The act of bringing your tongue up releases your jaw muscles. So if you, even if you feel yourself just starting to tense, Immediately bring your tongue to the roof of your mouth and let your jaw drop. That one pairs really well with taking a deep breath. And so there's a couple of techniques for breathing um, that will really help to ensure that you are taking the type of breath that will help you relax and dissipate some of the adrenaline that's coming, that's starting to course through your body. The first is called a double breath. And that's when you basically inhale in 
and then you exhale out for double the counts of your inhale. So for me, I tend to inhale in two and exhale out four. That's a really good one. And if you're relaxing your jaw and doing the double breath, so much the better. If you're in a situation where you have a little more time, you can do something called a box breath. So if you think about a box, it's a square. All four sides are the same. The concept here on the box breath is that you breathe in, out, inhale, exhale for all the same. So it's basically two breaths in, two breaths out. So inhale out, inhale out. And so you can go inhale for a count of two, exhale for a count of two, inhale for a count of two, exhale for a count of two to close the box. But in your mind, just visualize going around the box as you breathe. Sometimes I need to do that a couple of times. I do, I know myself enough um, when I get fired up, I'm a blurter and an interrupter. So I have learned the technique of keeping myself on mute until I speak. That has helped me in a lot of situations not to speak before I think. <laughs> um, you know, and then there's always the my mom's favorite count to three before you speak. Um, any way that you look at it relaxing your jaw and breathing is going to give you the ability to calm your central nervous system and become aware of what's being triggered in you. Again, if you know your, you know, your five basic needs and you know which ones are high for you, chances are you're going to hone in pretty fast on what is really getting to you, what is triggering that reaction, recognize that it's okay, it's not about me. Um, the other person just has a different quality world. And that can give you the capacity to start to think different thoughts, which brings us to assuming positive intent. So assuming positive intent is really now where you're stepping out of your ego and the instinctual reaction, which is all about me, how I am impacted. And this person is doing something to me. Assuming positive intent means that you recognize the other person is also motivated to do their best, to do well, to you know, not cause conflict, but that they simply are coming at it from a different perspective. And if you can believe and, and truly embody that sense of assuming positive intent, then you're going to be more likely to, you know, not just try and enforce your perspective and, you know, push the other person to do it your way. But in fact, you now have the ability to ask and get curious about their perspective. So you can do any one of these things. You can do all of these things. Uh, again, 
you know, a combination is good. I would say pick what feels right for you and start with one and do it consistently. So, you know, what what you want to really look for by inserting a pause is to be able to step back from that moment that is triggering you and consider the big picture. So I work a lot with um, teams and, and corporations. And in this situation, consider the big picture is about looking at this moment, this disagreement in the context of something bigger. We are working on a shared purpose. We are working together to achieve a goal. We are trying to create a collaborative trust-based team. You know, again, the more I can focus on the bigger goal that we're working on, the less this one-off incident is going to take me sideways. Because when we are all working towards a common goal, there might be challenges. In fact, it's part of life to have challenges. But we can remind ourselves that, you know, we may not win each skirmish, but we have a bigger battle together to go through. And that's really the big picture is, you know, whether it's your personal relationship with a spouse, a child, a parent, uh, or your colleagues at work where you work on a team, we will have disagreements. We have different quality worlds. We have different things that we value. And we are different people in terms of just how we think about things. But if we assume positive intent and really think about the big picture and the common goals that we have, we can then start to remember that we're all working for the same things. So finally, what I really want to share with you is just kind of how do we put this all together, right? So a circumstance triggers a thought. Um, if, you're, if your first thought is, you know, that you're, that something that is important to you in your quality world is being threatened, it's going to trigger your amygdala and emotional reaction. That's really deeply hardwired in us. So we need to be able to build in our nature, our habit to take a pause. The pause allows us, whether it's breathing, relaxing your jaw, tapping, it allows us to assume positive intent. Remember that it's not just happening to us, you know, but to actually you know, consider that other person, ask questions, be curious, uh, remember the big picture that we're in it together. That will allow us to move from angry, emotional, threatened feelings to calmer, open, curious feelings, which allows our creativity to come back into play and our thinking brain, our conscious intent. It then allows us to take action, which is 
ask a question, work towards our goal together, have a dialogue, find out more, which is so much better than throwing your chair and slamming the door. And in the end, your results are a you know, high-performing high team, uh, trust and psychological safety in your personal and professional relationships, and, you know, overall positive outcomes. So where can you start inserting a pause? Think for a moment about some situations that, you know, might be ones that typically trigger you. You can probably think about a person who's close to you. And again, it's the people closest to us that have the ability to just hit our buttons because they know us so well, but also because we care more about making sure our quality worlds are aligned. So it's, you know, the more you know your quality world, the more you can share that information with somebody else to say, this is important to me, you know, um, maybe we can work on a compromise, maybe, you know, I know it's not as important to you, but this is really important to me. So think about those moments that, you know, might be the ones that typically set you off. Think about and maybe take a few minutes to just visualize one. Uh, I certainly have a recent one from a big project that I've been involved in where um, I just trained a lot of people and uh, the leader of the business group, after all of the training and wonderful things there, decided um, some of the functionality that we trained people on was going to be removed. And so I had to have a conversation and certainly now, right, I built all this stuff, I've trained these people, all these things have gone on. Um, when he said, we're not going to let them use that functionality anymore, we're going to take it away from them. Guess what my first reaction was, you know, I felt threatened, my need for power and being right and you know knowing what I did have value was threatened and my first response was um, emotional very emotional and I wanted to blow up but by taking a deep breath and really stepping back I was able to give myself enough space uh, and there was a lot of tapping that went on <laughs> Uh, I was able to give myself enough space to have the presence of mind to say, help me understand why after all of this, you feel this is necessary. And that allowed him to share some other information that I had not previously understood. And while I still don't like the fact that these changes are happening, I do feel like the disagreement and the conflict dissipated, we were able to now work towards a common goal of addressing what his goal was and looking at how to do this in a way that minimizes the impact on the folks we just trained. So what could have been a very heated, emotional, reactive situation 
through having that pause, maintaining that sense of emotional balance, I was able to work through it. He didn't escalate. I didn't escalate. We made it through to the other side with some, you know, really good compromises that we negotiated on both sides. So um, the end result, I hope you feel comfortable to start to integrate that pause into your everyday habits. The more you do it, the more success you will have. And I certainly thank you for being with us here today. If you um, are interested in finding out more, you can find us at the Eureka Project. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Barry Harris or at Eureka, it's me on Instagram. So thank you very, very much and uh, enjoy perfecting the pause. <laughs>